This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, last week uh, we learned that Dennis O'Brien, one of Ireland's richest men, the owner of Digicel, was in a bit of trouble. He had a debt uh, that Digicel had to repay by March 1st. They weren't able to do that. And from owning almost all of the company, he was reduced in one fell swoop to around 10%, and maybe uh, even that won't be worth very much. It is a spectacular fall for one of the most successful Irish uh, businessmen. And we're joined now by Richard Curran. Richard presents the business show uh, every Saturday morning on RT at 10 o'clock, and it's excellent. And he is a contributor to the Irish Independent as well. Richard, Dennis O'Brien is a phenomenal figure. He has been a robust and very successful figure and a very ambitious one. But for some time now, it's been obvious that Digicel has real problems. Uh, maybe it started when they were going to float on the New York Stock Exchange in 2015. That didn't work because uh, there weren't any takers. No, I think there was an opportunity for a different outcome, perhaps, if he had have successfully floated in New York in 2015. But he decided to pull the plug on that within 48 hours of going ahead, based on what he saw about the appetite among investors to buy the shares. It's not that there was no appetite. We don't know the details, but it, it appears most likely that they weren't willing to pay a value for the shares that Dennis O'Brien felt they were worth. And afterwards, he said, um, you know, I'm glad I, I, I pulled the plug because you, you wouldn't sell your front garden uh, if you thought that it was worth more or you wouldn't sell it at a discount. So looking back now, there may well have been an opportunity, even if he had accepted a lower valuation at that time, perhaps there might have been a different outcome uh, to this for the company. But I do think, Eamon, though, um, when were the seeds of this sown? It, it probably yes. had to do with the whole business model around Digicel, because in one way, it was a fantastic achievement to win a, a license in Jamaica on the other side of the world and then turn that into a massive mobile phone conglomerate in 25 markets with 13 million customers. 
But the way that he did that was that he tapped the bond markets for very large amounts of borrowing and debt in order to put in the infrastructure, you know, expand the company. And then the idea is that if the company expands enough and you make enough profits, uh, you're in a position to manage that debt and everybody gets paid off. In this instance, at one stage, the debt peaked at $7 billion. And there were some very good days early on in the company whereby Dennis O'Brien was able to take out dividends between 2005 and about 2015 of 1.7 billion euros. So he'd yes. already made his money from it. And then you had a business that after 2013 kind of stopped growing in terms of its its overall revenue size. It sort of peaked in scale um, 10 years ago. Yeah, Haiti was one of his markets and he was a big player. They had a tragedy there, earthquake, I think, and he he helped the Haitian government. That was a big market for him. And also that part of the world, Trinidad and Tobago was another market. So he was exploring markets where the infrastructure didn't exist and the technology didn't really exist. And it, it was fertile territory for people who were just about to make their first move into mobile phones and later on broadband and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, most of the markets that he went into at the best of times are difficult places to do business, uh, whether it's dealing with government, dealing with administration, dealing with civil servants, just putting up infrastructure, getting things done and making sure, you know, you get paid. And Haiti, you know, one of the poorest countries in the world, yes. was always a difficult place to do business. And, and he had made a go of it. At a time then, the earthquake happened. It was devastation. And, you know, he was still heavily involved in rebuilding the country and making money there. But there were two things went against them in Haiti in recent years. One was Digicel owed all of its debts in dollars. And the currency, the GERD in Haiti was yes. falling in value. So all the money that you might make is in the local currency. And that's actually worth less when it comes to paying off dollar debt. And then much more recently, the place descended into social and political chaos. There was the assassination of the, the president. And right now, two thirds of the capital city is run by armed gangs. Yes. And it's very, very difficult to turn that around, to have an election, to do any of these things. So the company said in November that in the six months to the end of September, instead of making um, about $75 million in that six months, which they had done the previous year, they would actually be making more like 20 to 25 million. And if anything, that situation has got worse. There are now blockades of fuel getting into Haiti. They need diesel in these uh, generators to uh, give power to the mobile phone mass. So it's it was always a tricky place to do business. It's now become, I'd say, nearly impossible. Now, the beginning of Dennis O'Brien goes back about 20, what, almost uh, 25 years, 24, perhaps, when he won the contract to have the first mobile phone license in Ireland. It was controversial because uh, the Moriarty Tribunal subsequently investigated uh, the relationship between Dennis O'Brien and uh, the Minister for Energy and Communications at that time, uh, Michael Lowry, Larry and uh, O'Brien were ultimately vindicated uh, on costs and stuff like that. So nothing conclusive emerged from the Moriarty Tribunal, but it did cast a shadow. 
It certainly cast a shadow because uh, the investigation went on for so long. Some of the evidence that was heard, you know, was really kind of quite extraordinary, whether it was on the Michael Lowry side or insights that we got about uh, how Dennis, you know, had, had run the business and his relationship with his business partners in ESAT Digifone, who were the Norwegian company Telenor. Yes. And in the end, the Murray Arts Tribunal concluded that the minister had helped to deliver the license. Uh, Dennis O'Brien continued right throughout and to this day to say that he was not involved in anything uh, inappropriate in relation to the license. But that was the conclusion of the tribunal and he has disagreed with the findings of the tribunal. But by winning that license and then turning that mobile phone company, ESAT Digifone, into a huge success, that really bolstered him so that when he sold it in 2000 uh, to BT, he personally would have uh, gained about 250 million euro. Yes, and one of his big, I mean, PJ Mara, the late PJ Mara, who was a good friend of mine and was Charlie Hawhey's press secretary, government press secretary, PJ advised O'Brien for many years. And O'Brien's decision to go into media, Richard, in, in PJ's view, he said he shouldn't have gone into it. And he told O'Brien, you don't like them. He doesn't like journalists. You don't know it. Don't go. But he had a feud with Tony O'Reilly, which led him into uh, the feud was over Aircom, wasn't it? Yeah, it really it, it went back. And to it was a, very bitter. It, it was very bitter. Absolutely. The feud really began when both of them went head to head to try and uh, buy Aircom. Uh, it was very close in the end, but ultimately, Dennis O'Brien's, uh, it's a personal view of mine, Dennis O'Brien's track record in relation to trade unions, because ESAT was a non-trade union yes. house, um, meant that the, the, the communication workers union and their shareholding through the ESAT or shareholder trust, which had about 15% of the company, they were extremely unlikely to back the Dennis O'Brien bid, no matter what it said. But in yes. the end, they backed Tony O'Reilly. Uh, Dennis O'Brien lost out in that bid. And the company went on to be financially successful for those new owners. O'Brien felt, firstly, that um, he'd been hard done by in independent newspapers' coverage of that takeover battle. Yes. And he also felt that independent newspapers he'd been hard done by in the coverage of the Moriarty Tribunal. So, for example... I would have known Dennis O'Brien. I interviewed him several times in the 1990s. He he agreed to be interviewed for a book that I was writing in the 1990s on entrepreneurship in Ireland. But when I started covering the Moriarty Tribunal, uh, my relationship with him deteriorated. You know, he he uh, he phoned me up a number of times to challenge me about what I was writing. He stopped talking to me, refused to shake my hand on a number of occasions, and eventually, throughout that takeover battle over Indo. Um, well, when I was deputy editor of the Sunday Business Post and still writing about it and uh, writing about the Moriarty Tribunal, uh, he would have written a 14-page letter to the editor uh, contesting my coverage. So that's just a, a spat that sometimes happens between business people and journalists. But I suppose it puts in context how strongly he felt about what had happened in the coverage of Moriarty and in the Aircom takeover. So he wanted Indo. You know, he, he wanted to depose O'Reilly's control of Indo and, and basically be in a, in a controlling position in the company. Yes. And O'Reilly had always been known how to take care of the unions. Even when I worked there, uh, Richard, he 
always looked after the unions. He had a, a union rep on the board, as I'm sure you know, one of the print uni- union guys. And ironically, what Tony O'Reilly did with Aircom, he, he flipped it really, made a quick book and ran away. Yeah. And it prompted Dennis uh, to want to buy independent newspapers. And that whole exercise over a period of years cost him an estimated 500 million. Yeah, he started buying up the shares, Eamon, and in a very unusual move, he publicly dissed the company by saying it's badly run, it's not as good a business as people think, uh, it spends too much money on the head office, and he had a whole range of reasons as to why he was sort of trash-talking the business, while still then buying shares in the company. So it's kind yeah. of like people say, well, if you think it's that rubbish, what, why are you spending all this money buying shares in it? So he increased his stake as far as he could go, which was 29.9%, and after that, if you buy any more shares than that, you must make an offer for the entire company. O'Reilly could rely on probably about 35% support uh, between his own shareholding management and others. So uh, it was really, he, he'd reached a sort of a, almost like a dead end uh, because he, he was going to have to make a bid for the whole company. And people felt that's a huge ask. The valuation on it was enormous. So yes. he was buying shares, spending millions on it. Dermot Desmond uh, invested in the company. He bought about yes. five or six percent, and Dermot Desmond took the decision to to back Dennis O'Brien on key decisions, and that would have been instrumental in uh, in increasing his influence in the business. O'Brien always denied that in any formal sense he had control of it yes. because he only had twenty nine point nine percent. But certainly, you know, the chairman was uh, Leslie Buckley, a good friend of his, and he was clearly very influential in the company. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, the move away from Ireland to set up his uh, Digicel, the, the company, to go he bought a place in Portugal, which is a beautiful place, came to Lago, which is now he's, and he's improved it. Uh, in fact, it's listed as his home. He uh, did other things, but he also, he founded Digicel. They bought, as we, we said, in Haiti, or they invested in Trinidad, Tobago, and very in places where that, that weren't really stable. The build up to the 2015 attempt to float on the New York Stock Exchange. I suppose that would have been, would it, Richard, if he'd pulled that off, that would have been a eureka moment in terms of rewards. Yeah, I mean, he'd already taken out about 1.7 billion euro prior to that in dividends. And this would have been an opportunity. What was on the cards was that he was going to sell 40% of the company. He owned 99% of it at that stage. He was going to sell about 40% of it, and it was going to raise $1.8 billion. Now, he wasn't necessarily going to take that money himself. He was actually going to use it to pay off some of the debt, because yes. at that stage, the debt in the business had ballooned and they were facing a lot of challenges from competitors in these sort of uh, more peripheral markets. So it's, it's great when you get in first and you're the first ones with a mobile phone license, you can make lots of money. It's all uh, new territory. But then there comes a time when you've got to invest, you know, more in data, more in uh, other services. You've got to improve your infrastructure and you've got competitors nipping at your heels. So the way to respond to that is to invest, invest, invest. So if he pulled that off, but he made a number of, I mean, and this is totally with the benefit of hindsight on my part, but what appear to have been mistakes. One was, in the run-up to that float in 2015, there had been three or four or five flotations had not reached the target share price. So that yes. kind of looked dodgy in terms of the way the market was going. Secondly, he was going to sell 40% and keep 60%, but he wanted 95% of the voting rights. Yes. So in other words, he's saying to people, come and buy 40% of my company, but I don't necessarily need your input in controlling it. I'm going to keep 95%. Investors kind of don't like that when it comes to a company that's already indebted. And then the other issue was he was going to use some of the money to pay down existing debt. So if I'm an investor, am I going to spend 100, 200 million to invest in a company and my 200 million is going to pay off some of its debts rather than build new masts and go into new markets. So you'd sort of, all of those things had gone against them. And what's really interesting, Eamon, is that when you look back, the growth in the company's revenues had peaked at, in 2013, two years earlier. Yes. If he'd gone in 2013 to the New York stock market, the market was on fire. Yes. It had, 2013 was the best year for flotations 
since 2000. And the market itself had had the best stock market performance in 13 years. But the problem was in 2013, you might say, well, why didn't he go then? He was very busy trying to win a license in Burma, of all places. And Burma, tricky place to do yeah, business, as you'd imagine. Uh, yeah, now, yes. Yeah, and uh, it was, it's a population of over 50 million. And he may have felt, if we get that license, and that's a 50 million population market, it will really increase the value of the company. So there may have been an element of being distracted by trying to win Burma rather than thinking about floating. I don't know, that speculation. But in the end, they didn't win the Burma license. Uh, the Norwegians, Telenor, won it. And ironically, when they won it, they made they had a few good years, and then there was the military coup, and they yes. had to take a hit of $700 million on their yep. investment in Myanmar. So it was a lucky escape for O'Brien in that sense. Now, the, the thing about him in his general dealings in business is he is extremely determined, very, very hands-on, even... I worked for him at News Talk, and he had opinions about program in independent newspapers, the same thing. It didn't work, and he lost a lot of money. The trouble, I suppose, is timing part of the trouble, as you've just illustrated there. Uh, had he sold or attempted to float in 2013, he would have been okay. And the same thing, when you look at the locations, Haiti had problems, and Trinidad and Tobago, these places are not you know, the most stable places. So he's been unlucky, but he's also been very determined and stubborn in terms of his vision of how things should be. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's part of his business style and his personality. And, you know, he, he sort of, you're, you're either, you're either with me or you're against me kind of thing. And yeah. when it came to Digicel, you know, during the, the really high growth days, uh, he was able to pay himself money out of the company and take 1.7 billion euro out of it. What that meant was that after that, from about 2013, 2014 on, the real risk was being carried by the bondholders because if it all went wrong in the morning, yeah, kind of difficult for Dennis O'Brien, bit of, bit embarrassing, ignominy, but he'd already you know, bagged 1.7 billion out of that business. So he yes. was really putting the risk on their shoulders. Now, he was never going to give up his ownership and control of this company without a fight. And what he did do was in 2020, uh, he's already done two restructurings on the debt where he negotiated with the bondholders. Initially in 2018, he got them to delay repayments of some of the bonds. In 2020, he convinced them to write off $1.6 billion of their debt. And in return, he didn't give up any of his shareholding. So he clearly drove a very hard bargain with them at that point in time. But things didn't necessarily improve. You know, things began, interest rates started to go up, higher cost of doing business, the dollar went up in value versus the currencies yes. he was operating. So in the last couple of years, these things really started to go against him. Haiti had its own then uh, implosion. So he might have felt you know, I can see them off in 2020. I can still have ownership of this business. The problem was the equity in the company, because its debts were so huge relative to its assets, What what is the value or what was the value before this deal of owning Digicel? The shares weren't really worth very much. But now he might have taken a view, if I try and bat them off again, 
and I agree to put more money into the company myself and I try and keep ownership of it. The problem will be I'll end up working for the bondholders. Well, that appears to be, and I saw a piece in the Sunday Times suggesting that for the first time in 25 years, he'd be working for someone else uh, rather than working for himself. He will, but he won't be... um He's going to own about 10% of the company. So the question yes. is really, they're going to have to incentivize him to work very hard for them. And yes. the way to do that will be to agree to give him more shares in the future and maybe bring that up to 20% depending on, you know, the performance. But if he, if he put up a fight and, and held on to 99% of the company, you know, for what? Because they were only going to come calling again. He was going to run yes. into the same difficulties and he would end up busting a gut as the person who owned the business to make the repayments every quarter or every half year for a load of bondholders. In this scenario, he's only got, you know, 10% of the company and they're going to have to incentivize him to, to really drive that forward. And they need him because of his knowledge of the business and his contacts. Now, he's decided to uh, become a citizen of Portugal, and that's maybe for tax reasons as well. But he is still involved uh, in stuff here, some of it controversial, the site serve business, which is not yet resolved. And he's involved in that. That's a, a, it's a result of Anglo-Irish Bank, isn't it? Yeah, this was a business that he bought uh, from... Anglo-Irish Bank, which later became IBRC, and he bought it for a relatively small sum. It had huge debts, and it was uh, quite a big employer. It did a lot of sort of facilities management and infrastructure servicing and so forth. And he he has turned it around, and it has expanded. And it's a very uh, it's a very su financially successful company now. He also, around about that time, the time of the crash, he bought into Topaz, the uh, petrol station chain, and yeah. he would have bought into that quite cheaply. And then in 2015, that was sold for about 258 million euros. So he he did well out of Topaz. He also has the Beacon Private Hospital, yes. which seems to continue to do well. And he would have other interests in property, but. On the, on the downside, if you looked at, you know, what did he do with the 1.7 billion euro that he received from Digicel between 05 and 2013 or 14? 500 million, you know, he lost on independent newspapers. Yes. He loaned about 150 million to Communicore, which was his radio group. And then yes. he had to convert that into equity. And then that was sold for about a hundred million. So I don't think he came out ahead on his radio interests. He also spent a lot of money on property in Dublin four. You know, he, he spent 35 million on a house in Shrewsbury road and then said he wanted to flatten it. Uh, and he wasn't given permission to, to level it. So he still has that house. He also bought a site from UCD for, I think it was about 15 million. Uh, with a view to building a house on it, but I don't think he did build on it. So he put a lot of money into property in Dublin 4, and he still has those different interests. Yes, and uh, he's, you know, he, he also put a lot of money, uh, people might think, into the FAI and paid for Giovanni Trapattoni to come and Roy Keane and Martin O'Neill. He gave the FAI 12 million and helped with the rent for the Aviva and all of that. And in return, he's an honorary vice president of the FAI, which is, um, I suppose, something that he's also a shareholder in Celtic Football Club. The last question I want to ask you is about 
these two guys, both of whom we know, Tony O'Reilly and Dennis O'Brien, two titans in a way. They loathed each other, apparently, and they both ended up not being masters of the universe. Is that a fair comment? Well, certainly, I think Dennis O'Brien, uh, his, you know, I think his personal wealth is not as great as it was, and he's now lost control in this manner of his his biggest business, which was Digicel, and he's he's taken a few hits along the way, and he's had some some gains as well in terms of other interests. But I mean, he he's been a controversial figure. Uh, I think in Tony O'Reilly's case, Tony O'Reilly, you know, was probably Ireland's first billionaire, and uh, again, you know, financially. Uh, ran into huge difficulty. In his case, I think uh, the trigger was probably more Waterford Wedgwood and the fact that he yes. he actually put uh, several hundred million of his own money into making Waterford Wedgwood work, and it didn't work. And um, that would have had ripple financial consequences and ripple effects, which left him very heavily indebted. And, you know, he's had his own uh, financial difficulties since then. There def- it, it was an extraordinary clash of the titans, And, uh, you know, in business terms, they're not looking as titanic. Okay, Richard, we're really grateful to you for joining us on the stand. Richard Curran is the presenter of the business program on RTE every Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. A very, very good program because business isn't always the sexiest thing. And Richard also contributes to the, the Irish Independent. We're grateful, Richard, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.